comes organically through to the website. So you're looking for traffic from from Google, you're looking from uh, you know social media, but having people organically share your content on other social platforms. I've spent the last two years learning from the best social media entrepreneurs out there and implementing the skills and ideas they have taught me in order to grow two successful social media businesses. After some time though, I realized that social media was only part of the story. As I expanded my network, I kept finding young entrepreneurs with multi-million or even billion dollar businesses that weren't doing anything on social media. Instead of building their personal brand and selling courses, these entrepreneurs were solving massive market needs by creating the next Airbnb or Uber. But the real question is, as a young entrepreneur, which of these options is best for us? social media influencer or startup founder. That's where this podcast comes in. With a mix of interviews with people from both sides of the aisle, you can see what appeals to you and how you can take the steps to start and grow your business immediately. Join me and follow along as I sit down with some of the top social media influencers and startup founders in the world to ask the most important questions and extract the information you need without the fluff you don't. My name is Apple Kreider and welcome to Young Smart Money. All right, this one comes from Laura Okula, who says, Daily listener, every day I start off my morning with some Apple, followed by some Khalid jams on my way to work. So many inspirational stories that motivate you that anything is possible if you get your mindset right. Laura, thank you so much. Huge fan of Khalid. Myself can totally get down with that. It sounds like an amazing morning for the rest of y'all. If you do want a chance to be featured on the show, all you got to do is find Young Smart Money on Apple Podcasts or CastBox. Uh, leave a comment or review, and you'll have the chance to be featured in the next episode. Let's get back to the show. All right, Kyle, welcome to Young Smart Money. How are you doing today? I'm very good. Thank you. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. So for our listeners that aren't familiar with who you are and uh, what MoneyWise is, could you give us a quick sort of 60-second overview of where you're at right now? And then we're sort of going to work our way back in time. Sure. So I'm presently um, Chief Executive at uh, Wise Publishing. We own and operate MoneyWise.com. So we're a personal finance publication that appeals to uh, a wide variety of people in all parts of their journey in, uh, I guess, the topic of personal finance. We have a largely American audience, even though we're based out of Toronto, Canada, and uh, the company is about two years old now. Cool. Well, I'm super stoked to dive into uh, where you guys are at right now and how you got there. But first, I sort of want to flash back in time to like high school, college age years, um, because we do have a lot of younger listeners here. Um, So I know you did end up going to school. Um, Throughout that time period, though, were you getting involved in any kind of entrepreneurial ventures or or, or basically what were you doing? No. So um, I was a high achiever and I did pretty well in school without trying too hard. But uh, I guess I got a bit lazy, academically speaking, I guess, in high school in the first couple of years of university. Hmm. And uh, I guess I'm pretty sure now that's because I was studying topics that I didn't have much of an interest in. So it took me a long time to realize, you know, I was most interested in computer science, business, mathematics. And, uh, you know, I guess I ended up for some reason as a student of the humanities. So I studied uh, <laughs> psych and history and eventually ended up in law um so it took me a very long time to figure out that uh, that entrepreneurship was the the path that i was most interested in so huh. very 
Yeah, I was interested to see that you had a, a history degree. So I was wondering basically where that came from. But I guess that that sort of sums it up. Yeah, didn't know what I wanted. <laughs> that's, that's, that seems to be the default option for a lot of people, especially uh, now that now that I'm getting up there in, in, in my years at school, a lot of a lot of my peers that didn't have any idea what they wanted to do were like opting into like psychology or history or, or one of those sort of general ones. Yeah. 100%. So so I want to I want to hear about the the first venture uh, that that you started, or at least like the first big venture. Um, and, and I'm referring to tickled. So could you give our, our listeners um, a brief sort of synopsis of like what tickled is? Yeah, sure. So tickled was a user generated content community. So founded that in I guess it was like 2012, while I was still in the university. So I was attending uh, University of Nottingham in the United Kingdom. Um, doing my law degree, another me not knowing exactly what I want to do with my life. Um, and Tickled was, uh, it started out as kind of just a way to make a little bit of cash to help uh, help my buddy and I through uh, through university. So we actually, it started over over lunch at a restaurant, at an Indian restaurant called Tamatanga. They had like a six before six special, six pounds before 6 p.m. And I think one of us made a comment about uh, you know how incredible it would be if we could only afford to eat at uh, at Tamatanga Daily. So, um, you know, we we started a website. Um, it grew to about seven hundred thousand registered users in just under two years. Uh, wow. We saw a billion page views on the website in two thousand fourteen. It was this really awesome place where people would share the user generated content and participate in these these uh, really lengthy comment threads. We had a lot of fun. Uh, I guess in 2015, we were approached by a company called Gateway Media, and uh, Gateway liked what we had done and uh, and acquired us. So we sold the company in 2015. So we had it for, for I guess, just over three years. Okay, so so there's a lot that I want to unpack in there. The first sure. thing, though, I'm curious, why, when you decided that you and your buddy wanted to have money for Indian food, like, why was building a user-generated content website the, the thought that you decided to, to go in on? So... Um, I think we just, we wanted to do what we were doing a lot of in our spare time, but find a way to make money. So, uh, you know, we, we spent a lot of time, I guess, on, on Reddit and other, I guess, user generated content websites. I think one at the time that, that we were, we were sharing back and forth a lot was, uh, nine gag. Oh, yep. Yep. <laughs> or classic. Or, uh, you know, I guess Imgur was just starting then. So we thought we could do that too. And it was something that, uh, you know, that we enjoyed doing with our spare time. So it didn't feel like, uh, it didn't feel like too much work. And we found pretty quickly that um, you could build a, a decent community around that type of content because it was really shareable. And that's, I guess, where we started learning the lessons about uh, the power of, of creating really accessible content that was, uh, that was easy to share. Huh. So how, how are you getting people to the platform? I know you said like shareability was huge, but like, how are you, how are you attracting users? Sure. So, uh, back then, uh, Facebook was the primary driver of traffic through to the website and Facebook acted quite differently then than it did today. So we created a lot of, I guess they're called like community pages. Oh, okay. So, uh, these community pages would grow really quickly. We had, you know, millions of likes across dozens of these community pages and we would browse through our most popular content that was submitted by our users and we would share that content to those community pages and it would drive traffic to tickled 
And then we develop strategies on Tickled to encourage people to register to become a part of the community. So it was all about community building once we had someone accessing the website. So we wanted them to visit because they saw a link on Facebook and stay because they wanted to be a, a contributing member of the community. What were some of those or some of those strategies to really build that community and, and help people feel like they were a part of it? Sure. So I have a funny one. Uh, when someone asks this question, there was a, uh, a post someone made. And so we did, we had this, this functionality on the website. We called it not safe for work, even though okay. this is safe for work. <laughs> um, and if it was marked as not safe for work, you could only see it if you were subscribed to the website. So you had to, you had to create an account. And we had this one post that we pinned to the front page of the website and the headline was Emma Watson topless. <laughs> but if you made it, if you, if you logged in, it was a photo of Emma Watson from the waist down. So <laughs> it was, we were just trolling people and uh, we found pretty quickly that it actually wasn't making people mad. They thought it was funny. And the comment thread was, uh, you know, it was, was amusing. People would, you know, we're, we're um, happy to participate in the joke and share that post round and that picked up a lot of traction and we probably we probably scored you know like 10,000 subscribers off the back of, of a post like that wow. but that that's just a, a silly one but other other ways of community building um, we would um, get a little bit more sophisticated and pixel people and create ads and retarget if they'd been to the website before and take a look at which content um, which style of content they engaged with and then try and target them with advertising that appealed most to um, the interests that they had. We assumed that they had expressed when they had accessed the website. Wow. So there, there are tons of different community building strategies, organic and, and paid. Sure. So if you were doing paid strategies, I mean, how were you monetizing the website? Was it purely just ads or did you have any other monetization strategies? Yeah. So it was mostly display advertising mm -hmm. as monetization and uh, we were also selling merchandise. So we actually sold, um, I don't remember the now, number now, but it was, it was north of 10,000 t-shirts at one point. Wow. It was pretty cool. Um, we, we also encouraged um, people, I guess Vine was popular then. So mm -hmm. we, would, we would mail t-shirts to popular people on Vine and get them to wear the t-shirts uh, when, when making a Vine. And we'd see a little bump in, in, in uh, in merch sales off the back of uh, that effort as well. Huh. Were they just like branded t-shirts or were they like your, your top posts on them or what? Branded, yeah, branded tickled t-shirts. We had, we had t-shirts, posters, stickers, uh, tote bags. There, there were, uh, there were characters that we created like cartoon characters. One of them was called tickled man. So there was a very <laughs> popular, uh, like a, it almost looked like a movie poster of all these like, uh, uh, characters that we had made and those characters were um, were on t-shirts were on posters and it was something that was really popular for people to, uh, to purchase at the time so we, we made some good money off of merch sales huh that's that's super interesting yeah. uh, I'm curious as well if, if you're relying on user-generated content were there ever like scandals or, or content that was posted on the platform that was like really not great yeah, so uh, obviously a, a big challenge with user-generated content is moderation. Yeah. So pretty quickly we learned that uh, any content submitted to the website would have to be reviewed before it could go live. Uh, we were, uh, I guess we never got to the point where we developed any software to uh, you know, scan the images. Yeah. We relied on community managers. 
Hmm. So these were people that we noticed were relatively engaged members of the community and we offered them uh, access to like a higher level of functionality so they could see kind of like a page on the back end of the website as content was submitted. And then the community managers would review the content and once it was reviewed, it would go live on the site. But uh, yeah, I certainly saw things that I didn't want to see that I have had trouble unseeing in the time since. <laughs> but the, this, the, it, we, um, yeah, we developed some good strategies to make sure that uh, that the bad stuff didn't make its way to uh, to the live site. So. Sure. So, so with those community managers, uh, you weren't compensating them at all. You were basically just like you saw that they were really engaged on the platform, so you offered them like like, you yeah, said, so like additional. At the start, they were they were unpaid, and uh, we ended up hiring maybe about a dozen people once the site grew, uh, and we were we were paying them a little bit every month to be a to be a huh. community manager. That's solid. That's that's really cool. So, uh, I want to hear more about the the exit then. So, when you were approached by Gateway, what did that what did that interaction look like? It actually went pretty quickly. So, I think we were approached in in like July or August, and we had sold in December. So, I'm told that's quite quick from uh, from from like a typical M and A standpoint. Um, yeah, we've we've been doing the site for a long time. We realized that uh, we needed help if if it was going to grow. Um, we didn't have uh, a massive dev team. We didn't have uh, you know, a, a strategy for um, you know, the site beyond maybe like you know, six months at a time. And we realized we were still young. Uh, there was a lot of opportunity to professionalize the site, a lot of opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to learn more about uh, the, the publishing space from a company that had a little bit more experience than we did. So we thought it was, uh, you know, it was worthwhile to, to pursue the, uh, the acquisition opportunity. And uh, yeah, I don't know, pretty quick diligence process, lots of legal work. It was a crash course in, uh, in corporate finance, tax law. Uh, you know, it was, it was an interesting time. Hmm. Was it just the, the two of you that had equity at that point or, or was there anybody else that had equity? Yeah, we, we had a small group of investors. So we, we at one point raised money. I think we raised about $300,000, which wasn't that much. Uh, the reason that we went out and raised was um, for some additional, uh, like I guess strategic reasons for some experience people to offer us advice and guidance and connect us with, uh, with other people in the space. It was like mentorship. Hmm. Um, Went okay. Um, so yeah, all, James and I, my co-founder at the time, were, I guess, majority shareholders. And then uh, yeah, a few investors got a piece, and maybe about three or four people had uh, we'd we'd given equity options. So a few a few people got uh, got a little bit out of the sale as well. Hmm. All right. So when it, when it came to that exit, uh, you stuck around with Gateway for a little bit, right? Yeah, stuck around for eighteen months before, okay. I, before I left. What did that What did that role look like as as compared to what you were doing over at Tickled? Uh, quite different. So I had started off as uh, you know, went from being president to general manager of the office in Toronto. So my role changed quite a bit, and then eventually I was moved into an R and D role. So I didn't really have any direct reports <laughs> at that point for a long period of time, and. Uh, my job was to find new ways to monetize the site, drive new traffic through the site, and uh, focus on opportunities uh, that 
would improve the uh, the other websites that were run by the company as a whole. So I wasn't just focused on Tickled anymore. I was looking at a number of other domains that hmm. uh, Gateway operated. Well, what were some of the strategies that you found that you think could be applied for for some young listeners? I know this might have been a few years ago now, but um... yeah, sure. this is stuff that we still do today. So I, I you know I spent a lot of time learning about uh, affiliate marketing. I spent a lot of time learning about uh, techniques to encourage. Uh, direct sales. So we instead of uh, relying 100% on on like programmatic display advertising, there's uh, you know it's developing direct sales channels, working with uh, with agencies and advertisers directly. Um, we learned about other methods of monetizing the website, like uh, you know first party data. So um, yeah, I, I think the the lesson would be there are dozens, hundreds of ways to to monetize a website outside of display. So there's always something that that uh, that will suit your audience and and other ways to monetize your site. You don't have to stick ads up. Mm. That's the only way to make it happen. For sure. So when it comes to establishing like what's best for a certain um, either person in particular type of website, uh, what are some of the strategies that you found to be most effective or like figuring out between all those hundreds of options, like which ones are actually like practical? There's no easy answer to that. I would say test and see what works. It's all about, uh, I guess, someone someone smarter than me told me, fail quick, fail often, fail cheaply. <laughs> so um, try everything, but know when to pull the plug. Hmm. S- sign up to a dozen different affiliate uh, you know, services, sign up to different display networks, try selling merchandise, create uh, paid memberships, like, you know, sell sponsored placements. Eventually you'll figure out what works for you and your audience. Mm, Absolutely. So uh, now I want to transition into what you're doing over at Wise Publishing. Uh, So talk to us about when that first started. So once you were finishing up your time over at Gateway, um, how how did you get the idea for, for personal finance, first of all? Because it doesn't seem like that has been a really integral part of your story so far. Yeah, sure. So I guess after the acquisition, I suddenly had a lot of money, which was not something that uh, that I had had to handle myself. Sure. And I guess that was the point that you know was my crash law in uh, my crash course in tax law, investing, mortgages, insurance, wills, retirement planning, just everything to do with personal finance. I had to learn pretty quickly, and. Uh, I, I found that I was actually quite passionate about it. So uh, as I as I had to learn more, I guess I was forced first forced to learn more. I started learning, uh, and I wanted to take those lessons that I had learned and share them with as many people as possible. I guess uh, you know I started reading some of the more popular books on the subject of personal finance, and I think from reading those books, I realized that like a, the majority of people who were probably reading those books had already taken an interest in personal finance and the way to attract more people to the topic or to educate as many people as possible would be creating like really accessible, shareable content, kind of like we had done at Tickled before. So wanting to, you know, publish something that was a lot lighter and, uh, and more accessible than the type of uh, information that's provided to you in, in a book specifically on the subject. So, sure. so that's, so- what did, what did the first iteration of that look like? Were you just like typing up articles and like posting them or what was the first idea? 
Yeah, so at that point, we had learned a lot about digital publishing from working from obviously from running Tickled and then from working uh, at Gateway, we learned a, a lot about digital publishing. So I kind of knew what, uh, what it would take in order to build a profitable website pretty quickly. So we went out and raised money and people believed in us at this point because we had a demonstrated track record of success, which was very helpful to starting a new business. And we took that money and spent all of it in like 30 days. So wow. we went and hired a bunch of people. We uh, paid designers to put together a really pretty looking website for us. We hired uh, writers to produce really high quality content. Uh, we had one of our investors is in ad tech. So we had them set up our display advertising and we kind of hit the ground running only a couple months after the business was, uh, was incorporated and we're pretty quickly profitable. So I'd say just after a couple of months, we started, uh, we started making money. And uh, yeah, since then, it's just been every day is a new lesson and reacting as quickly as possible. But we're now up to, I think, 17 full-time staff and we're hiring. And uh, yeah, after two years being the position that we're in, I think it's a combination of, of experience and luck and just having a really awesome team of people around us who, uh, who do a really good job every day. Amazing. So how, how does your main traffic strategies, how do those differ between Tickled and, and now with MoneyWise? So we know that really valuable traffic comes organically through to the website. So you're mm -hmm. looking for traffic from, from Google, you're looking from uh, you know, social media, but having people organically share your content on other social platforms, uh, people visiting your site directly, uh, email newsletters, but at the outset, it's really difficult to you know, have a massive mailing list or to encourage Google to click through to your site or uh, you, know, you don't have much authority at that point. So the first year was about uh, you know, awareness. So it was social media marketing. We were creating really good accessible uh, content and publishing that uh, on social media so that we could get some organic traffic through but really it was putting a lot of money behind that content. So sponsoring it and getting people to click through to the website. And the strategy has been uh, once those people arrive at the site, get them to subscribe to our newsletter, get them to um, visit the site directly, become a paid member of the website. We've been doing a lot of like B2B work. So getting people to syndicate our content has been really big for us. So you'll see our content now published on Yahoo Finance and MSN Money. Um, you'll see our content published in print and online uh, with a few newspapers uh, in the United States. So eventually the goal is build up enough domain authority that um, you know, organically more people arrive at our site than we, we have to pay in order to get them there. So we're, we're, we're well on our way and I think just keeping the quality of the content high and continuing to produce a lot of um, a lot of stuff that that other people like to cite and share and syndicate is really important to that, that overall strategy. Huh. I want to hear more about this syndication because that's not something that I'm super familiar with. I mean, I've talked to a couple of bloggers before, but I've never really heard of that. So, so tell us more about that or, or those arrangements. Yeah, sure. So some of them are paid arrangements and some of them are exposure, uh, I guess. Uh, exposure isn't as good as, as, as paid, but ultimately, um, 
there are a ton of publishers out there that are starved for content, especially on specific topics. So a lot of news websites, um, you know, they, they, they write a lot about breaking news, but they don't write a lot of evergreen content or content that, um, I guess on subjects that they've never written about, but they have a, a captive audience that would be interested in that topic. So for us, it was just a matter of, uh, you know, relying on LinkedIn contacts or even sending cold emails to editors with sample content and asking them if they'd like to syndicate our content on a regular basis. So some people uh, have set up, um, you know, automated feeds that, that pull our content down and publish it automatically. Others, we have to send them, you know, Word documents so that it can go through an editorial process at, uh, at their company on their website and eventually it's published. And it's really about encouraging people to, you know, leave your links alone, to link back to you, to ensure that the canonical points back to, uh, to MoneyWise so that you, you build your domain authority. Um, yeah, what we're trying to do is, is share as much, uh, uh, you know, of our, of our best content in as many places as possible so people uh, get familiar with, with the brand and, you know, really start to trust the work that, uh, that we're producing. And eventually you know, the, the goal is they'll, they'll visit MoneyWise and trust MoneyWise as, uh, you know, as, as one of the, the, the most authoritative sources of personal finance content anywhere on the internet. Wow. So uh, I'm also curious about uh, how you were able to build your team and what that process looked like. Because I'm sure uh, once you had gotten to this point, you had a lot of connections, you, you knew a lot more about the world of online publishing than when you got started. Yeah. So what did, that, what did that structure and that process look like for you? So um, my co-founder at uh, MoneyWise was my, uh, my CTO at Tickled. So we've known each other for a long time. We actually, uh, we met in Nottingham in the United Kingdom, which is where I was at university. And he came with his family to Canada. So we've been working together for a very long time now. Um, other members of my team were also, a few of them were former employees at Tickled uh, who had uh, also worked for Gateway and left to start this company with me. Um, that was only a, a small selection of us. Other people uh, who work with us today worked for, uh, you know, I, guess I would say like competitors in this same space. Uh, and uh, they either jumped ship or uh, were, were laid off when when the when their company left, uh, you know, where, wherever it was that uh, that they were living. So we found really good people and scooped them up, and that was through you know various connections that we had elsewhere, people that we had met over the years, and then a number of people that work with us today. It's uh, it's us reaching out to them on LinkedIn because we see they have relevant experience or simply placing job ads and going through dozens of interviews before we find the right person who fits with the, uh, with, with the team. Hmm. So there's, a, there's a wide variety of, uh, of folks that work with us today, but it's really important that I guess everyone that we hire brings something unique to the team and uh, brings a, a set of skills that, that no one um, on the team presently has because we're such a small group of people. We expect that, you know, until we until we grow more, everyone's going to be wearing multiple hats, and everyone's going to have uh, a lot of responsibility for for vital functions of the business. Okay, that makes sense. Now, for a young listener who wants to get more into the world of like digital publishing, writing for publications, um, what what sort of advice do you have as far as like helping them uh, stick out either on LinkedIn or, or just like making themselves unique and, and valuable to these publications that you said in some cases are really lacking for 
um, evergreen content. Yeah, I'd say, well, one thing that we look for with, with especially with writers, um, it's people who have a way of connecting with their audience that makes their writing accessible. So like personal stories are something that I find incredibly interesting. And I think our audience tends to find incredibly interesting. So if someone is, uh, is writing on a particular subject, doesn't have to be personal finance, be whatever that subject is. If you have a personal connection to that subject and you write about your personal connection, I think that'll attract a lot of attention to you. And uh, yeah, we get people all the time asking us to guest post on the site. And that's not something that we do very much um, for a variety of different reasons. But perhaps instead of reaching out to people and asking them to guest post, maybe value your, yourself and your content a little bit more and uh, you know, send sample work, find the email address of the editor or like an editorial email address and sample work uh, that shows um, you know, that you're a subject matter expert or that you have personal stories that would be interesting to the audience and uh, maybe share a rate sheet as well. So talk uh, right up front about what it'll cost to have you work with the team. And I think uh, you know, every publication out there is always looking for really good writers and looking for people who are gonna bring them a new audience. So even if you have like a, a little social following, you don't have to have thousands of you know, followers on Twitter, um, you know, mention that as well. So it's a, it's a place that that, that publication um, you know, can, can share their content that you would contribute to, uh, to you know, an entirely new audience of people and, and that's valuable as well. But just, just be, um, you know, stand out by by, by being a little bit more personal in your writing. Don't, don't be so technical, be accessible. And I think that's, that's kind of what we're looking for and what I see a lot of other publishers looking for today too. Hmm. I, I like that a lot. And yeah, I, I can totally relate when I'm reading something that, that has like personal anecdotes and stories. Like usually I'm a lot more engaged than if it's just like straight facts and figures um, that, and that can be a lot more intimidating too, especially when you're appealing to that younger or, or not necessarily younger, but less experienced audience. Yeah, you'll find, I think, a lot of the time that people are interested to read about um, relatable stories. If something isn't, uh, you know, if they aren't a, particularly interested in a subject, it's very difficult for them to stay engaged if it gets technical. So as light as you can keep it, uh, I think that's the way to, to go. And then if you're a publication, uh, it's a good mix of, you know, having a good mix of light content and technical content you know, once someone has demonstrated that they're interested in the, in the subject matter that you're writing about, that's when that content, that more technical content becomes more valuable. Absolutely. Now you said that the site was profitable pretty quickly. Um, what base or why do you think that was, I know you had a lot of experience, but what were some of the, the key factors that led you to becoming profitable so quickly after launching? Um, I think you said it's kind of experience was a big part of it. We knew how to make money with uh, programmatic display advertising. Um, we were very data driven. So every single dollar that we spent, we tracked the, um, you know, the return on, on that spend. And um, we were, I guess, incredibly careful about the rate at which we scaled. So we did a lot of planning. And I think that's something, I guess that's, probably what I would say is the greatest takeaway. We, we did like two year projections, even though the company had only been around for a month. So it was just about setting goals for ourselves and making sure that, uh, 
that every month tracked as closely as possible to the numbers that we had uh, input on that spreadsheet. And if we were, uh, if we were short, then we knew that we had to make changes quickly because of the timeline that we had set for ourselves. So it was really about being, about being methodical and data-driven and really careful about, uh, about tracking every dollar that we spent. I'm curious to hear more about what that goal setting process looked like. Cause yeah, if you were one month in and setting expectations for the next 24 months, uh, how were you, how were you doing that? And what did that process look like? Yeah. So it was, was kind of like, where do you, you kind of ask yourself, where do you want to be in a year? And you put a stupid number on a spreadsheet and then you say, okay, that's the goal that we want to accomplish. What does it look like to, uh, you know, what, what does the next month look like? What does six months from now look like? So you start by just playing around with a spreadsheet for, you know, hours. So you might, you know, say, all right, if my business grows 20% month over month, does it get me to that number? No. Okay. So I have to grow 50% month over month. Oh, but that seems like it's crazy. All right. So maybe instead of linear, let's make this exponential. So let's grow 5% month over month for the first couple of months. And then, uh, and then 20% and then 50% and that gets, and eventually it, it, you, you arrive at, at like a formula that, that doesn't look too nuts. And then you, you plan everything out from there. So, you know, how much can you spend on advertising? What does it cost to host the infrastructure for the website? How much can you afford to budget for editorial content? Um, how much is it going to cost you for rent? And everything just gets worked into that spreadsheet. And if the spreadsheet doesn't work, then you're on the right, wrong track and you know you have to go and make changes in, in, in the here and now. So it's it's really a, it's an exercise in, uh, you know, you're kind of licking your finger and sticking it up in the air and it's, it's a bunch of uh, BS, but, uh, you know, eventually you'll, you'll find something that, that makes that makes sense and you run with it. Yeah. Huh. Do you have any advice for the young listener on, on balancing sort of that planning phase and the action phase and knowing like when they're doing too much planning or not enough? Um, I don't think I have a very good answer for that either. I'd say, certain members of your team will have certain strengths and you have to rely on people who are, uh, you know, the, the planning type to do as much of the planning as possible and leave other people on your team to do the actioning of that uh, plan. So you can't be everywhere all at once. I think one of the more valuable things for me has been having co-founders from the get-go. So building a team of people with different strengths, and relying on those people to take responsibility for the things that you've assigned them to do and trusting them is, has been really important. Like from day one, we hired someone that we had worked with for a long time to, to help us put together our financial plan. So I didn't have to sit there for, for hours and days putting all those numbers into the spreadsheet. I would come in and participate at the point that there were a few different models and I would help massage those numbers to make sure it looked uh, realistic given what I understood about, uh, about the business. So yeah, just, just spreading the uh, responsibility and trusting other people that you work with. And I guess having a, more than a team of one from the start. What makes uh, in your experience, what has made a good co-founder? Um, trust is a big one. Uh, having very different strengths, so having very different responsibilities. Um, and I think uh, 
someone with thick skin because ultimately you're going to be arguing and fighting and saying not so nice things to each other regardless of how calm and cool and collected you are and they have to know that uh, you know you don't mean it <laughs> and that you don't have to uh, apologize every time because they understand that you know you're, you're in it together and <laughs> and you care about each other and you're trying to uh, you're trying to accomplish the same thing so you know a, a good friend is, is certainly something that uh, that helps because hmm. uh, yeah it's sometimes strange to start off if you're if you're just entering into a new relationship with someone that you haven't interacted with much before um, I can see how uh, you know not being able to be to be entirely honest or, or having to tiptoe around feelings might, might make it more difficult to, uh, to get a business going. That's, that's really valuable. Yeah. I, I want to ask a couple quick questions before we wrap up. Uh, sure. The first of which is what are some common mistakes that you see uh, people in the, I guess, publishing space in general uh, making when they're just getting started, whether they are, are contributing for other people or uh, writing on their own site? I think that you have to value yourself more. <laughs> so good content is hard to come by and good writers are hard to come by. I think if you're producing quality content, then people should be paying you for it. I don't think you should be giving away your stuff for free. And uh, if you value yourself and you value what you do, um, then you should also focus on finding ways to monetize your content pretty quickly as well. And uh, you know, just blogging and giving away your ideas for free. Um, you know, it's it's admirable, and I know a lot of people that that do that and do it well. But um, if you really want to become a digital publisher, you know that that IP that you're creating is, is genuinely valuable, and there are there are millions of people out there who are uh, you know immediately willing to to pay to access it and share that information. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Valuing valuing your content is is huge. Kyle, I'm curious, what is something that uh, has you genuinely excited right now? Could be either in your business, in your life, but like what's got you fired up? Um, I don't know. I'm following fintech a lot of late. I think that there's a ton of really great fintech startups, but um, you know, the main hurdle that a lot of the fintech startups have had over the past few years is encouraging people to trust them. So you know, like the, the example that I've used a few times when asked about it is like, why would you trust a company called Robinhood as opposed to like JP Morgan Chase? Like, isn't Robinhood famous for stealing money from all yeah. people? Like, <laughs> like, is that where you want to put your wealth, your, your life savings? But I think fintech's getting interesting now because like a lot of these really big financial institutions who've had to, you know, they, they move slowly, you know, I guess because of like regulation, you know, the importance of sign off from compliance departments, uh, you know, spending a lot of time and effort developing the software and testing it before they release it to you know, a massive amount of people. I think we're finally at the stage now where you start to see a lot of these really big companies, uh, big financial institutions getting into deep into fintech. And I think that means that like all the really cool stuff is going to start becoming accessible to the masses. So stuff like, you know, mobile payments and automated savings and investing insurance, estate planning, like all that stuff is starting to become mainstream now. So I think that's kind of cool. That's what's that is definitely something to be excited about. Uh, do you have any habits that have served you particularly well, either in your business or your lifestyle? Um, maybe the bad habits have served me best. So, 
I drink too much coffee. I probably work too long and ignore my family. <laughs> I eat quickly so I can get back to my desk. So, you know, I've had people tell me that I should like eat better and take up yoga, but nope, that's not what happens. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think I have very many good habits. I'm probably not the best person to ask about good habits. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. I mean, that's honesty right there. Yeah. Uh, Kyle, do you have anyone who you uh, look up to for really anything could be business related, could be otherwise? Yeah, I have mentors. I don't think anyone famous, but uh, just like, you know, family and friends and other people in business that, uh, that have done well, that I rely on for their, for their advice and guidance. So I think, I think everyone needs a mentor and everyone needs someone smart to bounce ideas off of. I don't think, uh, I think you'll, you'll pretty quickly realize that most of your ideas are, aren't great if you start speaking to someone who, uh, who has a little bit more experience than you. So I think everyone, everyone needs a mentor. It doesn't, doesn't matter who that is. Yeah. Sure. Any, any advice for the young listener on how to start connecting with uh, these higher level individuals that have more experience? Yeah. I mean, look to family and friends to start. Everyone knows someone who's done well in business. Um, if you, if you, if you want to expand your network, then there's like, I know meetup.com is a great website with a lot of, uh, you know, events that you can attend every, uh, every week, wherever you live, um, attend conferences, attend talks locally, maybe in mail on LinkedIn. I know like it rarely works. At least that's my experience. Yeah. I know most in mail, but you know, every once in a while someone reaches out to you with an interesting story and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to connect. So I think just, just put yourself out there. Um, and you can be old school about it. You can carry around business cards or, uh, I've been to conferences where people slap QR codes on their t-shirts, <laughs> you know, like whatever, whatever works for you. I think just, just start, you know, just leave the house, I guess. <laughs> yeah. That's, that is the truth right there. Uh, Kyle, if our listeners have been enjoying the value you've been providing, where's the best place for them to go to follow up with you, uh, learn more about Wise Publishing, Money Wise, and, and all those good things? Yeah, so I'd say learn about Money Wise, Wise Publishing, not so much me. Probably a lot more <laughs> interesting than me is like the work that's being done by the people who work at, uh, at Wise Publishing. They have a great team at Money Wise. So I say just you know, visit our website, moneywise.com. Sweet. And I'll link that up in the show notes as well. Uh, Kyle, do you have any last uh, parting thoughts, words of wisdom, or anything you want to uh, leave an audience of young listeners with here today? Um, I think kind of what I said before, just make sure you bounce your ideas off of other smart people. I don't think, uh, I don't think it's good to, uh, to work by yourself. I think you have to surround yourself with other people who, who have uh, a passion for, for your passion um, who can offer you advice and guidance and, uh, you know, teaming up is, is always better than, uh, than working alone. Hmm. I love it. Get yourself around those people that'll help you level up. That is, that's the name of the game. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for your time. I'm extremely grateful for it. Um, and I really appreciate you choosing to be here on young smart money today. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, there we go. Another episode of Young Smart Money in the Books. Glad you guys were here to spend it with us um, and really soak up as much value as possible from the guest of the day. Now, if you guys haven't already left us a review on iTunes, I know I say it at the end of every single episode, but I really do love those reviews. We've got nearly 200 at this point, which is absolutely amazing. It's crazy to see that we're reaching hundreds of thousands of people with the podcast and that some of you guys have actually chosen to go out of your way, take five seconds and write us a review. It means the absolute 
absolute world to me. And again, if you guys don't know where to find the review section, because a lot of you guys hit me up and you're like, I want to write your review. I, I love Young Smart Money so much, but I don't know where to write the review. You just scroll all the way down. You go to Young Smart Money, you scroll all the way down past all the episodes, past nearly 200 episodes, and you find the write a review section. You leave me all of your thoughts, all of your genuine, heartfelt comments about the show. I read them all, I digest them all. They get me going every single day. So I really appreciate that. And the last thing that I want to say to you guys before we wrap up here is I want you guys to take action. Okay. You just spent nearly an hour, maybe more than an hour consuming this content. And I want you guys to take action. Okay. I really encourage you to, while you're going through the show, be mindful, take notes, really soak in the information. Don't just be there and let the information flow through you. Like let it soak in to who you are and really, really find something, find one thing that you can take away from this episode that you can go out there and actually apply right now in your day today. Okay. I want you guys to stop listening for po to podcasts for the next little bit here, uh, maybe the next 15 minutes and just think about how you can start to take action okay think about one thing that somebody said in this podcast today that you can apply to your own life and go out there and implement it okay and then let me know how it went because guys i see so many people just listening to content soaking up content all day long but they never do anything with it okay so i want you guys i don't want that to be you i want you to be the person who actually takes action so go out there take some action let me know how it goes and i will see you in the next episode